This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and to help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry and you're listening to Trek FM. taking all these books i thought i'd take some light reading in case i got bored hi everyone thank you for joining us here on literary treks you know this is episode number 277 which means we've been doing this a long time but i haven't been here the whole time i just joined like a couple years ago and when i joined dan gunther was here and dan gunther is still here dan you're still here on literary treks I am still here. You know, when you started with, uh, hi, everyone, I wanted to go, hi, Dr. Nick, but that didn't happen. But uh, <laughs> yeah, no, I'm still here. Happy to be here, as always. Yes. And, uh, you know, because we like to review Star Trek books and comics, that's what this podcast is all about, the official books and comics podcast of the Trek FM network. And on today's feature, we're going to talk about a Star Trek Titans novel. It's Sword of Damocles. So stay tuned for that. But before we do that, we have some news items, not like a lot of literary news items, but we have Comic-Con to talk about because as we record this, it's just a few days after Comic-Con had ended and there wasn't any book news that was announced. I think uh, we are going to get that at Star Trek Las Vegas. So Mm -hmm. we'll talk about that on a later episode. Of course, the This episode releases right when that convention is happening. So with Comic-Con, we did get news about Star Trek Picard. And the reason I bring that up is because we got some information about that series that contradicts some of the continuity that we've had with the post-Nemesis novels. So I've been reading a lot online where, you know, Trek readers like us are freaking out. Oh my gosh! the whole continuity of the past, whatever, 17 years of Trek literature continuity in the 24th century is all going to be thrown out the window and overwritten and it doesn't count and we're done and we're all going to die and the world has just ended. <laughs> Cats living with dogs, pandemonium. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's terrible. It's crazy. So I just want to ask you, Dan, your feelings. Are, are you crying? Are you upset? Or are you just like... Eh. I mean, I'm kind of falling in the eh side of things. 
you know, I, I know this is the wrong franchise, but all of this has happened before and all of this will happen again. You know, this is uh, the 80s Star Trek continuity. The same thing, right? Things came along later that uh, invalidated them. Um, I'm sad if this is the direction that it goes that, you know, we won't get more in that continuity. But at the same time, when this news came out, those books didn't disappear off my shelf. They're still there and we're still reading them right now and enjoying the stories in them. So, um, you know, the biggest thing that kind of people are, are pointing to is putting a knife in the continuity is the, uh, the Picard museum exhibit at Comic-Con had a plaque or a, a, a information card on the model of the enterprise E. And it says that Picard became an admiral um, in 2381 and then shortly after retired from Starfleet. And the novels are currently up to 2386 and he's still a captain on the Enterprise E in those. So doesn't seem like it'll be compatible, which it's unfortunate, you know, but at the same time, someone else pointed out, and I kind of agree with that. I almost prefer that there's like a very clear, oh, these don't, these aren't in continuity any anymore rather than like, well, maybe this will kind of fit if we squint and we can make this work. It's almost preferable to me that it's like, okay, nope, there's, there's this continuity that will no longer continue. And the, um, canon continuity, which is separate from that now, like it's, you know, it's kind of nice, almost nice that there's just this clean break. Yeah, and I think I mentioned in some of the forums and on like Twitter or Facebook that, you know, for all we know, we may call this continuity the destiny timeline, just like there's the Kelvin timeline. And, you know, it could be a different timeline or, or a different universe or whatever. And to me, that's kind of the easy way out because that's kind of what you expect with Star Trek. I'd like to see the authors maybe be a little creative and maybe see if they can tie it in in some way and in a very creative way. But again, I'm fine with that too. Like you said, it's like, it's, it's different continuity. You don't even have to say it's another universe or timeline. I'm just fine with saying these are stories that took a different direction than where things are going now. And you just, yeah, you have both. I mean, it doesn't link up currently with uh, Star Trek online the comics, the countdown comics don't exactly link up and I'm okay with that. And you know, when, uh, the other franchise star Wars, uh, when that, this kind of happened to them where they took all the old novels and said, now these are called legends and they're not part of the Canon. You know, some people were very upset and I'm a light star Wars reader. I've read a lot of the novels, so it didn't affect me as much as star Trek because I read more star Trek novels than star Trek. I mean, than star Wars, but I often said to those people, I would be okay with that if it happened in Star Trek. I'm perfectly fine with this. So mm-hmm. I've always expected that someday this could happen and I'm okay with it. It's still there. You know, it's, it's good. They're just stories. Exactly. Now I, I see here you've screen capped an interesting tweet that was, that came out this week, kind of in the wake of that news as well, that uh, has had a lot of people, uh, kind of interested here from david mack yes he says as more news from star trek picard emerges from stcc it's amusing to compare the reactions of fans of the star trek novels oh no they're burning down the entire 24th century trek continuity versus the reactions of those of us who write the books quote relax we have a plan for that 
end of quote. And there, that relax, we have a plan for that, is in a photo of them on the Enterprise Bridge. It's David Mack with uh, Kevin Dilmore, and then in the captain's chair, we have Dayton Ward. But uh, he's not being condescending. He's he's not being facetious here. I mean, it's like, you know, this is true. He They have a plan. I've seen him online say, no, I'm, I'm being serious. We have a plan for that. So there's a plan out there. Yeah, and it really seems that he's trying to be reassuring, which is which is nice. And I mean, you know, there's a lot of ways you can interpret that. Maybe they do have a plan to weave the continuity in somehow and make it all still flow. Or maybe they have a plan for how they're going to transition out of that continuity and do something different. We don't know at this point, uh, but, you know, they're on top of it. And uh, we also got a comment from David Mack uh, on Facebook that there are Star Trek Picard novels coming. Uh, he said he wasn't able to say who's writing the first one, but they know at, at this time who is. So, you know, the way I look at it is there's a lot more to come in Star Trek, both on screen and in books. And you know me, I'll be there reading it regardless. So... uh Sad to see if some of the the tales of some of the characters I love in the 24th century shared continuity come to an end, but also still excited to look over that horizon to see what's coming next. Yes, actually, it gets me excited. I think it would be kind of cool to see a different take on this time frame and see how it plays out. So, yeah, we'll we'll see how that works out. And of course, we will always be reviewing the new books, whether they're in continuity, out of continuity, whatever, here on <laughs> literary tracks so that being said speaking of people's feedback let's look at the babel conference on facebook and see what the feedback was on literary tracks 275 where we covered the next generation novel q a which of course is a q book and we have a comment from ian kimmins says interesting read this one it's nice as you guys mentioned that the new characters aren't regulated to a bit part players in the novel I feel in some of the post-Nemesis lit stories, we rely on a lot of Q and or the Borg, so I didn't enjoy this as much as you guys did. An enjoyable enough read, three out of five. That's in line with us, I'd say. Yeah. Well, um, a little less than us. Yeah, I think I enjoyed it a little more, but uh, yeah, you know, um, I, I definitely understand the whole, like, oh, too much Q, and norm, like, it took to my mind, a really good story to push past that feeling for me. And this one succeeded in that area. So yeah, I, I get that. And you know, there was a Q conflict number six comic that we reviewed where I said, I think I'm starting to get tired of Q. So I totally get yep. that. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, I, I was kind of right there with you. That's it's, it's an easy well to go to too many times, I think. Well, Oz Trekkie says, my thoughts on the Q&A title is that it is due to getting the answers for why Q has acted the way he has and the trials he put the Star Trek crews through. One of the new characters I really liked, Miranda Ketohara, and I like her arc as we move forward in the coming novels. I thought that Zelik Lebenzon was a stereotypical security officer who had come up the ranks. Every time there is an enlisted person who is promoted to an officer, they always distrust officers and prefer the company of the enlisted people. It would be nice for once someone put somewhere put a different slant on this type of character. I liked that Jordy had issues with Kato Hada but couldn't work out why he, until he had seen the counselor. On a side note, all the relaunched novels all have counselors who would be considered atypical. 
TNG has a Vulcan to Lana, Titan has a Tellarite, Hajj, and Voyager has the unconventional Hugh Cambridge. I may need counseling for my counseling sessions if I had to see this lot for help. I am in awe of how Keith seamlessly weaves every episode and novel appearance of Q into one big overarching story without making it look forced and mentioning it for the sake of mentioning it. We are blessed with some incredibly creative writers in Star Trek. Four stars for this one. Four stars. Okay, it's getting higher. We went from three (laughs) on the last one, four on this one. Let's go to Matt Rushing, who used to co-host here on Literary Treks, and he says, looking forward to listening to this I remember this being the only book I really enjoyed in the run up to Destiny, and mainly because I was so done with the Borg at that time. <laughs> you know, <laughs> there's a consensus out there. It feels like, you know, people start to get tired of the Borg, maybe start to get tired of Q. You know, we keep going mm-hmm. back to the well. Well, luckily, there's no big Borg stories coming up in this in this storyline. Oh, uh, wait. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. Never mind. We'll get there. <laughs> Well, you know who we haven't heard from yet in this comment thread, which is really weird, is Justin Ozer. Oh, wait, nope, here it is. Justin Ozer. (laughs) (laughs) And Justin comments, I've only heard half of the episode so far, but I wanted to get my comment in to be read on the next show you record. I absolutely loved Q&A. The way all of Q's appearances are tied together and how everything unfolds is amazing. I also loved seeing chapters that included the Titan, Admiral Shelby, the IKS Gorkon, the Valdor, a Karama ship, and a Malon ship. Those were great and unexpected crossovers. Kato Hada was fantastic and quickly became a favorite character, and Le Benzlin was very interesting. I loved all of the character moments in this novel in the midst of a grand and dramatic story. I hadn't read Q&A before, but now it's in my top 10 of the nearly 250 Trek novels that I've read. Woo! Wow. Top 10. Look, there. see, we're getting higher. Top 10 out 250. Woo! Yeah, that's very high percentile. That's awesome. <laughs> that's that's a five out of five. It's got to be. Definitely. In your top 10 like that. <laughs> so Kimberly Lawler says, adding another comment from not just a noser. she says i enjoy kato hada a lot she had a distinctive voice i could really hear in my head like you said sometimes when new characters are introduced with our crew there's a kind of suspicion but she and lebenzon are given prominent roles that work well uh, she also says that she likes her working out with beverly and the dynamic with jordy and uh she says about there's a lot of amazing parents, single parents in Star Trek, except for the O'Briens and Tom and Balan, of course, on Voyager. So she says th- that she's hard pressed to think of any other married senior staff members on the TV shows. So it's nice to see Riker and Troy and Picard and Crusher together in the novels as parents. And then the rest of the book, she says that I thought it was fantastic and easily as enjoyable as the original Q novels from Peter David. Keith did a great job casting all the old Q episodes in a new light and the fast pace kept everything very entertaining. And I think that's true. I think it just really worked, you know, that whole mm-hmm. like tying all those Q episodes together. So she's actually, I'm just jumping ahead here. She's giving it a four out of five security officers being broken in by Lebenzen. <laughs> and that's from your metric, Dan. Yeah, and and yeah, she gives it four and a half out of five, uh, and I'm I'm still kind of disturbed by that half of a security officer there. I don't know how that works. It's uh, seems a little gruesome. <laughs> yeah, 
Brandon Harbeck says, Q&A is a good story and I highly recommend TNG and Q fans read it one time. However, the story does not hold up as well on rereading for me for a few reasons. One, the new characters getting development here are pretty much all gone in a few books. Ooh, spoilers, dude. Two, the main plot is so memorable that my mind doesn't need much reminding of it. And three, the galaxy hopping tangents went a little too far, and that left less space for action on the Enterprise E and our main characters. Well, thanks for that comment and uh, interesting uh, perspective on that. I hadn't. I think it's because I read it so long ago. This reread was a lot of fun for me, but yeah, maybe on a shorter period of time, it might not be quite as rewarding. So that's all the comments we had in the Babel conference. So thanks everyone for writing in your comments. And we have an email here that tackles the subject of the Q and A cover. This email is from Jay Carapandi. And uh, he says that he's not sure why it's data, but this cover appears to have more of the picture. I'm like, wait, what's this? Wait. And so I had to click. He put a link in his email. And sure enough, this is the same cover you see on Q&A in most countries where we're debating about who is that person standing there. And, I, you know, they chop at the top of the cover. They chop half his head off this Starfleet officer. And I was saying to Dan on the show, that kind of looks like data. And, and Dan's like, yeah, I've seen some of those comments online. And we're like, but it must be Q or maybe it's trying to be Picard. And I think we thought maybe it's Q. And sure enough, here's one that is, uh, looks like it's written in uh, Czech, the language. And uh, it you see the full face and it is data. That's crazy. Why? Why? Yeah. Data's not even in the story. He has nothing to do with this, or very, very little to do with this. Why <laughs> yeah, is it and, data? And if you look at like the, the context of the whole picture, it's it's specifically from Nemesis, where he's standing in the corner, right about to jump uh through the hull breach over to the scimitar. And yeah, it's uh I mean, maybe they thought they cut enough off the face to make it look like just a generic, you know, it maybe people will think it's Q. And whoever did this foreign cover design messed it up and and showed too much of the face or something. But either way, it feels very lazy to me. I, I don't like this cover. I really like the novel, but this cover, yeah, it just screams laziness to me if that's kind of how they went about doing it. This has to be one of the worst Star Trek covers ever because it features a character that has nothing to do with this novel. Yeah. <laughs> It's ridiculous to the point that Simon Schuster pocketbooks cut his half of his face off just so that you couldn't tell for sure who it is. It's just, it's crazy. And then, so Matt rushing does our cover art for each episode and he used the German cover, which has Picard and Q on it. And Keith DeCanado, the author said, thank you so much for using that cover (laughs) in your show cover. It's like, yeah, because the other one makes no sense. So Absolutely. I don't I don't have like anything to chop this one up, but it gets a big thumbs down for me. <laughs> Agreed. Yeah, um, I, I didn't mind it too much when it was ambiguous. But now that I've seen the whole picture and it definitely is data, I can't not see that looking at the cover now. So, yeah, that's really unfortunate. Maybe it's the ghost of data. I. Uh, <laughs> Who knows? I don't know. Well, we got another email. This isn't about Q&A, but it's about the novel Resistance, which we covered on a previous episode. And this email comes from Rich O'Donnell. And uh, he says, hey, guys, thanks for the great show. I recently 
got a copy of Resistance, so I was happy to read it and listen to your show when it finished. And he goes on to say that he felt that uh, the it feels almost like a video game where the crew would try to break a level, die, reset, and try again. He's, he thinks maybe it should have been written along the lines like Shatner's The Return, but tying it all that was established about the Borg since the novel was written. He says that, um, and this is a, a long email, so I'm just picking parts of this, but he mentions in a episode Q Who, the Borg were supposed to be neither male nor female. In The Best of Both Worlds, Beverly said that the Borg implants are changing Picard's DNA suggesting a biological modification to the drones. The Borg do say biological and technological distinctiveness will be added to their own. So biological changes should be a part of the process. Now, okay, the reason that Rich is mentioning this is because in that novel, they're saying that you there is no gender when it comes to the Borg, which then mm-hmm. Rich later brings up in here that yeah, we do have seven of nine in Voyager, who is clearly identified as being female. But he says perhaps it was all part of a master plan by the Borg Queen to manipulate seven and use her as an instrument to assimilate mankind. Maybe who knows? Could be, yeah. the The weird part for me, and he mentions this too, that you know, seven of nine is even mentioned in this novel where they're talking about how the Borg have no gender. That's right. Yeah. So, it, it, yeah, it, it seems really weird. It doesn't seem to fit together well there. Yeah, it's kind of odd. But, yeah, that was interesting. You got me thinking about that again. So thank you both for sending in those emails. And, hey, everybody, keep sending emails. We love it. And, hey, keep replying on the Babel Conference. It's great stuff. But let's move forward. We've got a feature to do. And so we have the Sword of Damocles ready to review the next Titan novel. All right, so we're on to novel number four in the Star Trek Titans series. This one came out in 2007, and it's written by Jeffrey Thorne. And again, it's called Sword of Damocles. Now, Sword of Damocles, are you familiar with that term, Dan, and what that means? Vaguely. I, I'm not... I'm not- I should have gone and looked up the original legend, but the sword of Damocles is like a sword hanging over your head, ready to strike like this kind of symbol of an impending disaster that's in plain view and always ready to kind of crush your hopes and dreams. If I'm remembering correctly. Yes, that's correct. It's, it's almost a way of saying, cause the sword was hanging over Damocles, uh, because he wanted to know what it felt like to be in power. So, uh, Dionysius gave him the opportunity to sit on the throne and experience what that power is, but this sword was hanging above him by a thread. So hanging mm. by a thread is another way to think of Sword of Damocles. So, Interesting. Yes. I sound so smart, but only because I looked it up on the History Channel's website. <laughs> and I mean, that's more than I did. So you're smarter than me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I had to want, I was like, what, what does this mean? I don't know, but there you go. So that, so We'll find out as we talk through this, it'll be pretty obvious as to why that title was chosen for this book. So there is some nonlinear storytelling in this novel. So it's interesting because it starts off with an epilogue and then the book ends with a prologue. So yeah, there's some of that timey whiny shenanigans in between is like Dan likes to call timey whiny shenanigans, right? So <laughs> Dan, how do you feel about the nonlinear nature of the story and was it confusing for you? Now, 
I read this years ago and I remembered really enjoying it and, and not really being confused by it. But as you know, I kind of do when I'm, when I'm rereading a book, I kind of looked online to see what other people were saying about it. And a lot of people really didn't like it because they said it was very confusing with the kind of jumping around in time and stuff. Uh, so I was kind of worried this time around, Oh, I, I don't remember it being confusing, but you know, getting into it, that was kind of what I was worried about. Um, I, I didn't find it too bad. I, I was kind of able to follow the story. Maybe once we get into discussing the plotted detail, maybe I didn't follow it as well as I thought I did. But, uh, you know, I, I, I tend to like time travel type stuff as long as it's not, you know, done in a really stereotypical way or a very, you know, cliched way. And I think this was a really original type story that uh, I, I had no problem following and actually really enjoyed kind of how it was structured in a really different way. You know, the very beginning, for example, this uh, epilogue that we start with, you don't initially know who this character is that you're following. And then like little tiny clues kind of start to come out and you realize, oh, I think uh, he referred to something uh, Bajoran in nature. That's interesting. Right. And then you start to realize who it is because there's one prominent Bajoran character on the Titan. And I kind of like that, that little seeding of clues that keep me interested to kind of figure out what's going on. Yeah. And the epilogue, I went back and reread that since it's at the beginning of the book and it's not really a true epilogue because it's not, it doesn't take place after the story at the end of the story. It's somewhere like mm -hmm. maybe like two thirds of the way into the story. Which, yeah, it's a bit of a cheat. <laughs> yeah, it's a bit of a cheat. But I, I didn't notice that until afterwards because I was reading the show notes that you had put in. You mentioned the timey-wimey thing. And I was like, I don't really – I didn't really think of this as being much like that, like a, a timey-wimey story or having problems. I, I wasn't really all that confused. There was other things I was probably more confused about. But the time placement of things didn't bother me. I wasn't confused by that it wasn't one of these stories where we're jumping from one time to another and to another and another, at least it didn't feel that way to me because there's certain things as we'll talk through the novel where we find out that something's taking place in a certain time, but I, that's revealed later and it didn't necessarily confuse me. It just was, Oh, that's interesting. This is taking place in this time. Didn't even realize that, but it wasn't something that, I got lost on, I guess is mm -hmm. what I'm saying. But like I said, there's other things that were a little more confusing to me besides time. Interesting. I'm, I'm interested to find out what those were because that was one thing I noticed when I was kind of writing out some notes for this book is I was thinking like, yeah, I got a pretty good handle on this story, I think. And then I kind of, wait, what happened to that character? Where did they go? Oh, okay. That's when that happened. You know, I kind of had to yes. go back a little bit to get the, the, happenings of the story kind of straight in my head so yes there's some of that yeah I, i'm with you on that for sure yeah so this takes place on the planet orisha and uh that's the featured planet you know because all these star trek novels you gotta have that that one planet you know where <laughs> things are happening or whatever so now this has an insectoid species on it they worship the arika's eye and it's an anomaly near the planet that periodically releases or unleashes destruction upon the surface and on those poor people on the planet. And they are known as the children of Arakan, and they worship Arakan as a god, and they are fearful of his wrath. That is definitely one of the themes in this book is about fear. 
Mm-hmm. We definitely focus on fears being a big aspect of this book. Yeah, definitely. And you know what? Uh, you know, we'll we'll talk a little bit later about uh, destiny and religion and that kind of thing. But yeah, this is uh, they've they've created this entire religion around the fear of this thing, and there we go. It's the sword of Damocles hanging over the planet that's visible all the time and can at any moment completely wipe out any civilization that has been built up on the planet's surface. So there's kind of this cycle of, you know, they build up their cities and they get wiped out and they, you know, scrabble back from that and build up their cities and get wiped out. And it's this constant fear that they live under. And they don't explore the galaxy. That's something that's also revealed early in this novel because the Titan is being affected by these uh, warp pulse anomalies, which we'll get into in a moment. But a lot of this is caused by the technology from the Orisha because they have warp technology, but they don't use it for ships. They use mm-hmm. it as a protection, a shield to their planet, which is a very interesting concept, even to the Titan crew that, you know, who uses warp technology for shielding and not for travel? They're not, I mean, this, the, this group of beings are not looking to explore the galaxy. They're, they're content to stay where they are. And I think part of the reason is because of fear and because of the eye is watching them and they don't really understand what the eye is. They just know it's part of this worship of the Erakon, the God-like being or whatever. And, and so, yeah, I found that to be interesting. I, when we, and we get through this a little more, it gets a little more interesting and confusing at the same time. So mm. I'm not trying to say too much about it now, but Dan, what'd you think of uh, these insectoid species? I had an interesting time kind of visualizing them in my head. Um, they, they describe them as having four arms and then two legs that they kind of walk upright on. So I it was kind of thinking like Zindi insectoid or, uh, something like that. Um, I kind of thought getting into it that it would make it really hard to kind of, uh, relate to them on a, on a level that, you know, that you tend to relate to with people who have human looking faces. Cause you know, that's kind of how we're built. But uh, I think the novel did a pretty good job of making them relatable, even though they were very, you know, alien from what we're used to as far as a species go. And I I appreciated kind of the culture they'd built because, again, this whole fear thing, anything they do, they're extremely fearful that it might offend Erikon. So, you know, they, they maybe we didn't build our buildings right or we you know, we're thinking on pure thoughts and that's why he does what he does. So like they're, they're kind of almost like an abused, uh, person, you know, they're, they're just completely fearful of setting this thing off and never sure what move is the right move, but you know, they guide their lives by that, which is, you know, it's scary. You know, it's a scary way to live. And they're not cowards. I mean, they're no, definitely, definitely warriors. Not. They, they fight, with each other there there's there's war going on uh so yeah i mean this is fear in the fact that it actually makes them a little more aggressive probably as a species than maybe what they would have been if this eye wasn't there and uh, the other thing i want to mention from my standpoint on this species is i was envisioning them looking a lot like the geonosians in star wars attack of the clones 
uh, with more limbs. And, you know, it's mentioned that the species, some have wings, some don't. So I was kind of envisioning that, but, uh, and definitely this planet is, is not a very beautiful place to be in a sense, you know, the sky has different colors, but that's because, you know, the eye is kind of causing all this devastation and quakes and things. And so a lot of things are getting destroyed and there's fires and there's smoke and things. So it's almost like a war zone, even though the war zone probably is affected more so because of what's happening to the planet more so than what the species is doing. Yeah. And I mean, there, there's some, uh, <laughs> there's some interesting descriptions of the landscape. So it seems like, uh, it's kind of the, at least where the Titan crew find themselves, it's kind of a jungle area, but they keep talking about the vermilion vegetation. So this kind of red colored vegetation as opposed to the green that we're used to. So I was kind of picturing big, like jungly fronds and, and plants and stuff, but kind of this red color, which uh, would look interesting, but uh, definitely alien. <laughs> well, and they also mentioned that there's these spires that they mm -hmm. go and basically hide into to be out of sight of the eye and to protect themselves of the eye. But it's also a place where they have, it's almost like mission control in a sense, or, you know, like some kind of master control area that they're able to have like technology to, that they're using to help protect themselves and maybe do something with the environment, with the eye or something. I don't know. That part, I got a little confusing of really what their technology could and couldn't do. Yeah. It was a little bit, uh, unclear. And, and we find out later in the book where this technology comes from, which is interesting, but we won't talk about that quite yet. Um, but yeah, it was a little bit like, okay, so this thing creates a field around the planet somehow, but, it also, you know, affects Titan by sending out this warp pulse and that kind of thing. So, yeah, it's kind of it, it does what the plot needs it to do <laughs> to either create problems or solve problems. <laughs> yes, it does for sure. So that takes us to the mission of the Titan. And uh, we have been talking about these warp pulse anomalies around uh, Orisha. And this is what has been causing this warp field uh, problem. These uh, these waves uh, in space that prevent the Titan from really being able to use the warp drive. So they're kind of stuck in this area. So that's what's causing the Titan to have an issue and get involved in this because they can't move. They're just sitting there. Yeah, they could use impulse drive, but that's not going to get you very far, very fast. And they can't use this warp technology. So now that they're stranded here and they realize that this, this warp pulse is coming and affecting them, they need to go to the planet to talk to the Orisha about turning off whatever device they're using to create this warp pulse anonymously. But here's the funny thing. I love the conversation here where they start to have the debate. Well, is this breaking the prime directive? Because the Orisha aren't in space, but they have warp technology and the prime directive states that, you know, if they have warp technology, then first contacts allowed, but, the crew is pointing out to Riker, well, 
but they're not in space. You know, when we say warp technology, we mean they're using warp spaceflight and they're not. Mm -hmm. So there's a debate going on there, which then Riker decides it's worth going to see them because they're stuck anyway. They got to get out. (laughs) Yeah. And it's an interesting debate because like you said, you know, they, they technically meet the textbook definition, but at the same time, that's, you know, the whole reason for it is they're out there, they're going to make contact anyway. So, you, you know, you make contact with them kind of thing. But, uh, the, the argument becomes academic very quickly because like you said, they need to be able to get out of there. Uh, so the funny thing is they're still far too far away from the planet to get there, um, on impulse or anything like that anytime soon. So the solution I thought was really cool. Um, the Titan is affected by these anomalies and can't go to warp, but anything inside the Titan is shielded from those anomalies and can create a warp field. So they decide to take a shuttlecraft from inside the Titan, basically open up the doors and go to warp while still inside the shuttle bay and, you know, just kind of ride it as long as they can before the warp field collapses. And that should get them close enough. And I was like, that's kind of cool. I want to see and, and my mind flashed to like the millennium Falcon going to hyperspace, uh, inside the bay of, of Han Solo's ship in the force awakens, you know, that kind of, that's pretty cool. I'd like yeah. to see star Trek do that. Yeah. Just phew, shoot off as far as we can go until, you know, we can get close enough to the planet to at least beam mm-hmm. down. But yeah, that was pretty cool. No, I like that part too. That was very interesting. There was concern that, uh, it, there could be damage to the Titan by doing that, which mm-hmm. I don't think they really clarified. I don't, it doesn't sound like they really had damage caused from that. It sounded like they said like, oh, it'll be fine. There'll be some, uh, there'll be like a blown out bulkhead and some scorching or something, but they never really brought it up again. It was like, yeah, it'll be fine. You can clean it up once we're gone. It'll be okay. <laughs> so I would have been curious. I would have liked to have seen that damage afterwards, but they, they just say like, ah, it won't be too bad. It'll, there'll be some damage, but not bad. Uh, but we never see that again. Yeah. And on the ship are Vale, Troy, Carew, Rahavarai, Jaza, and a new character, Modin, who is all golden. You know, we mm-hmm. keep bringing up Star Wars and references, and now I'm bringing up C-3PO. Now, she's not C-3PO, but she's all golden. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> she's not a robot. But, uh, you know, Jazza finds her quite interesting. And uh, so they're on the shuttlecraft, and they're trying to get to uh, Arisha. And uh, again, to, so that they would stop the experiments with uh, those warp pulses. But um, they encounter a ship. It's the, I guess it is the eye because I remember it saying it, it, it brings like a tail up over itself, like a scorpion and it's shooting out these like pulses or, you know, this it's its own weapons towards the shuttlecraft. So is, is that, that's not the eye. Though, no, right? that's a, that's a ship that the Arishans have, have created kind of thing. Right. Cause we get, more information about the eye later. <laughs> mm-hmm. But at point at this point, I was starting to wonder if it was the eye. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, we're curious about, because they know about the worship of the eye from like monitoring their, their broadcasts and that kind of thing. They've kind of decoded all this information and learned all this stuff about this culture, but they don't know exactly what it is yet. You know, that's just this kind of, Oh, they worship this thing. That's weird. And they seem fearful of it. Okay. 
Um, but yeah, they encounter this ship and, uh, basically the ship starts, um, firing at them, seemingly protecting, uh, this thing that they're kind of heading towards. Yeah. And, and they're, and our officers are using kind of weird, like, you know, they can't really travel, but they're going to like use warp against warp to kind of push themselves away from the firing from the ship or something. Anyway, there's some weird, you know, techno babble, I guess, kind of going on here. (laughs) So uh, I'm just going to kind of put out there because we're starting to get a little more into the spoiler territory here. Uh, But they do crash land on the planet, which is Orisha. But is it really? Because as they're traveling to Orisha, they see that's going to be further away, but all of a sudden it comes sooner than they expect because it's this warp shield in a sense that that really they're entering. And then all of a sudden there's the planet before they get to the planet. And so there's very much, there's so much confusion that they have, like what's happening here. Did we overshoot things? Are we, you know, getting there sooner? And so they crash land and we find Jazza and Modin together on the planet somewhere. Because we get, we kind of jump ahead where they kind of wake up in the middle of a planet, and Jazz and Moden are somewhere, and then the rest of the crew is somewhere else, and mm-hmm. none of them are on the shuttlecraft anymore. Yeah, and so basically, what's happening is they're flying towards this anomaly, and this was kind of cool. Um, only Jazza and was it Modan or Rahavre? One of them. Only they could see it. And the other characters couldn't see it. And they were like, well, why is that? And he's like, well, Bajorans and humans are different. I guess we can see different wavelengths than you can or something like that. Um, But they enter this anomaly. And like you said, they're still away from the planet. But all of a sudden, the planet's there and they're going to crash. And uh, the shuttle's heavily damaged and that kind of thing. But they all kind of escape on the transporter and end up on the planet while the shuttle crashes. And yeah, it does seem that they're all very separated from each other with uh, Jazza and Modan together and the others kind of eventually all find each other together, but they're still interestingly separated somehow. Dot, dot, dot. <laughs> dot, dot, dot. Yeah. Cause I remember then they, uh, Jazza and Modan, they find each other and they're heading to the shuttlecraft and they eventually find the remains of what they think is Titan that had Mm -hmm. crashed on the planet. And of course they're devastated because you have to think uh, what happens early in the book as they're traveling towards the planet, Troy, you know, she can talk to Will, you know, telepathically, you know, Will. And he's like, Imzadi, whatever, and all this stuff. And then she loses that connection. And she's like, oh my gosh, I, I can't sense them anymore. I can't sense Titan anymore. They're gone. They're gone. They're gone. And now at this point in the story, as these two characters, Jazza and Modin, are walking around, they find a crashed Luna-class ship on the mm-hmm. planet. And they're like, oh my gosh, they crashed here. Everybody we know is gone and has died. And yeah. Okay. Let me just say this. I'm, I don't care because we're in spoilers. I was like thinking... And, and and by the way, the other members of the crew find this too, and they're thinking this the same thing. And and by the way, the 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 Orishans call this area the shattered place. Mm-hmm. And the other thing I forgot to mention, while the shuttle is crashing through the atmosphere as well, 
I think it's Vale who looks out the side window and sees what she believes the Titan is the Titan to be on fire and crashing through the atmosphere kind of alongside them as well. Right. So, So, okay. Now, okay. And yeah, we need to back up again because this is going to make my point. One of the things that happens early in their book, in the book that they're in this, this area, the Titan is, and they're, you know, doing these scans and, so they're all like, you know, the Titans like in this void or something and they have probes going out and they t- detect this signal from one of their sister ships, the Chiron. And then they, that's what kind of propelled them forward that falls into this anomaly. And so when later in this book, they find the crashed ship they're like, oh my gosh, Titan crashed. They're all dead. And I'm like, how do we know it's the Titan? Because they said there were three other ships out there, the same class, the Luna class ships were in that same area and they lost contact with them. How do they know it's the Titan? I bet it's not the Titan. That's, I mean, I knew it and sure enough, it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> you know, what's funny is reading this book, I didn't remember a lot about it, but I did remember that there was a time travel aspect to it so i have to admit probably the first time i read it i was like oh this isn't the titan this is another ship but this time reading it because i remembered there's a time travel thing i was like oh this is the titan and they have they they prevent it somehow through time travel that must be it (laughs) and so i kind of faked myself out because of my very very vague memories of something to do with time in this book (laughs) Your memories are better than mine because I read this book when it came out and I didn't remember any of this. I mean, this is about like the first time I was reading it. Yeah. And I, I, that was basically all I remembered was uh, like, there's some kind of time, weird time stuff. And the main character was jazz and a gem and something to do with the Titan crashing. (laughs) Right. This is one of the problems that I have by reading so many Star Trek books and, and comics and watching the shows and anything that, you know, I don't remember at all. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It's true. Actually. And I, I've said this before. That's totally the only reason I started that website where I review all the Star Trek novels. That was just a resource for me. So I could go back and be like, Oh, that's what that one's about. I remember that now. Um, but yeah, <laughs> there's times it's people will say like, Oh, Hey Bruce, have you read Star Trek? Blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. I read that one. They're like, is it good? And I'm like, I think I remember it being good. Yeah. And they're like, oh, great. What's it about? I'm like, I don't remember. No idea. <laughs> <laughs> I just know I read it like years ago. <laughs> There's some people. They're among the stars. They go on some sort of trek. <laughs> <laughs> they beamed someplace. I remember that. No. <laughs> but uh, anyway, so were you... Okay, we talked about confusion before. Were you a little confused that... Like I thought for a while, and, and, and this isn't a bad thing, but I thought for a while that Jazza and Modin were at one location on the planet while the rest of our crew was just in another location and they just haven't found each other yet. But we find out later, well, there are different times on mm-hmm. the planet, but I thought they were still within the same time and just hadn't run into each other yet. Yeah, and I'd forgotten that aspect as well. So I I thought they were all in the same time together. But yeah, they're very separated, uh, both physically. Well, actually, not all that physically. They're they're kind of in the same place. But they're separated by um, a millennium, basically. There's about a thousand years that uh, Jazza and Modan have appeared. And the others are in the 
present-ish, I guess. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, it was a little... At, at first, I'd kind of forgotten that, and it took a little while for it to kind of click that that's what was going on. Yeah, because I remember at one point they were both around the shattered place, and I thought, oh, they're all going to meet up now, and then it didn't happen. I'm like, how did they miss each other? And the clues that kind of got me there was they keep they kept describing the Arishan civilization as being at peace and they're all kind of working in harmony worldwide, you know, in service of Ericon or whatever. But, uh, when we see Jazza and Modan, there's different groups of them fighting each other. And there's this kind of constant fighting going on. And it seems like they're using like firearms, like with bullets and stuff, um, which seemed kind of like out of place. And the fact that, the culture was very different from what we learned. And then when it was back with the other people, they were in the same area and there was no talk of any of that fighting. They weren't trying to like avoid soldiers or anything like that. So I, I, there was, that was kind of the first clue that something was very different about where they were. And maybe that goes back to what you were saying earlier about the timey wimey thing about getting confused. So I guess at some points like this, I was feeling confused and maybe because of the timey wimey thing, because it was like, I expected them to all kind of be there. And like you said, there's, there's more of like this war going on and gunshots. And then with the other group that wasn't happening, even though they're all kind of in the same general area. And I just assumed that they just, the other crew members hadn't come upon haven't come upon that yet or something, but I guess the thing is you're supposed to be confused at this point. Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, That's I think so. <laughs> yeah. yeah, they're definitely, the, the author's definitely relying on that a bit, I think, because, uh, you know, th there's some very blatant parts where you're like, well, no, that should be there or that shouldn't be there. And, and your expectations are definitely thwarted. And Jazza really is the central character to this book uh you mentioned him earlier too about being bajoran and in that epilogue that was jazza uh that we were discussing and uh he's on this planet with modin and they found the shuttlecraft but it's you know something about it's not working where you know the warp drive's not going to work but they can go to the um they can go to the warp core from the what they think is the crashed titan and uh take that aspects of that and bring into the shuttle to give it the warp capability to just you know fly home and find the others or fly back to the titan or whatever but the thing about it is we have these flashbacks that jazz is having during the occupation with the cardassians on bajoran and how on on Bajor and how he was dealing with that and with his family and the loss of his family and the things he was doing, it was fighting and such. And he also had a vision at the time of a place that he would be when he dies. So there's times where Modin's like, well, aren't you worried about going over there or doing this or doing that or flying the shuttlecraft? We could die. And when we were flying here, you didn't seem to be worried. And he said, because he knows he had a vision from the prophets of where he's going to be when he dies. And during those events, those don't fit that vision. So he knows he's isn't dying at that point. So, mm -hmm. you know, the prophets have a sense of humor in a sense, you know, he brings that up too. And, and so here he is on this planet and he feels very comfortable until then one scene 
he recognizes the area he's in and the situation he's standing there and he's just looking out and he's like, Oh my gosh, this is that moment. This is where I die. Mm-hmm. And here's the funny thing that he would say it's funny too. He didn't die. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And you know, maybe it's a little obvious in the writing. Maybe, maybe it's like, you know, once you know it's coming, it's like, oh, yeah, okay, they totally set us up for that. But I do have to say that was a total, oh, dang, moment for me. Yes, yes. <laughs> like, it was really, I thought, well-written, where he comes over the hill, and he had described to Modan earlier what the, he kind of set the scene for what he saw, and she's like, oh, okay, whatever. And he comes over the rise and the description like is exactly what the what he said to her and i was just totally oh dang <laughs> it was that was good yeah that's definitely a highlight like you said the description i was saying you're reading you're like and you're discovering with jazz at the same time like oh my gosh wait this sounds like that vision this is that moment like we're both with the character going oh wait 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 this is it this is that moment and then i'm thinking <laughs> okay what's ha- gonna happen now like Where's where what's going to happen to him where he's going to die right at this moment and nothing like that happened. Mm -hmm. Um, But even prior to that and even after this, I've really enjoyed the discussions that he had with Modan where, you know, he's explaining, you know, his faith and and the visions and she's just kind of questioning like, well, don't almost like, you know, well, isn't that kind of superstition or you're a scientist. I mean, you should know, you know, and it's, and he just kept, you know, relating back to his faith at one point when he was younger during the war on uh, Bajor, he lost his faith. He didn't believe in the prophets until these other events happened and he had this vision. And now he's very dedicated to his religion and his faith. Yeah. It's, he's a really interesting character. And, and I like that kind of exploration of a scientist with a really strong uh, religious faith as well. And yeah, those discussions with Moden and, 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 and the kind of back and forth and how she comes to eventually realize that there's more to uh, what he said than she initially thought. I, th- I think that was a really interesting path and we're, we're well into spoilers. So the one thing about this novel I'm really sad is that we won't get more of that because um, Jazza is no longer a part of the Titan story going forward after this novel because of what happens here. Which was really interesting for me because I thought Jazza was around a lot longer than this. Mm. Like I thought he didn't <laughs> like I thought he was like I didn't remember it being this soon that he was gone. And again, yeah, and like you said, spoilers, because we're really jumping to the end. Uh he's not dead per se, but he does die. And the reason I say that is it's almost the way that Modan was telling the other crew members when they eventually reunited. She said he's dead he's gone and they're like how do you know did you see him die we need to go back and get him and she's like no he's gone because she knew that she had the two of them had traveled a thousand years into the past and that's leaving him behind now that she's back into her present well of course he has now since died over Mm -hmm. the last you know he didn't live for a thousand years you know so she doesn't know how he died he may have died of old age he may have been killed or whatever but eventually he'd he did die. And so uh, it was just interesting to see that conversation with Vale and Troy because they're upset that she would leave him behind, but it was his choosing because 
he didn't die at that moment. That vision wasn't about death. It was just his next journey. And that was to stay behind and help lead the Orishans. He became what later is known, I guess, as the Oracle. And he had to make sure that because they traveled themselves back into this past, that the past isn't going to get altered and he's going to put them on the right direction. Keep that mm-hmm. path going to build their civilization to where it ends up being in the future. And the way he does that, I thought was really uh, fun because they have these isolation suits and we've seen them in in um, action in only one on only one time, and that was Star Trek Insurrection at the beginning. They had those orange holographic suits that made them invisible. So that's how he's, you know, communicating with the Orishans and, oh, yeah. you know, basically whispering in the ear of this this one Orishan <laughs> and uh, influencing them that way. So he's trying to cause as little, you know, disruption to their society as possible and keep the timeline going and not let this crashed starship affect the 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 timeline um significantly and uh <laughs> i i absolutely love the scene where they're in the shuttlecraft and you know he goes outside and says something to this orishan and comes back in and the orishan walks off and they have this whole conversation and then the orishan comes back with the little components that they needed from the the crashed titan in quotes which is not the Titan, uh, brings the components back and puts them beside the shuttlecraft and then toddles off. Yeah. <laughs> he's like, oh man, he's got it made on this planet. He just, you know, can get it, get them to do anything for him. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> now that was good. I think the jazz is storyline. And of course, like I said, he's kind of the lead character in this. I think he was the most compelling and interesting character in this book. Mm-hmm, definitely for me as well, for sure. So let's talk about the other crew members and the solution to all of this. Uh, first of all, you know, the Titans still stuck where they're stuck. We know they didn't crash on the planet. And uh, they do find uh, a Russian ship flying around the eye. And they eventually board that ship and find this Orishan that is connected to the ship with cables, some of its half of its limbs like are cut off to the point that it's connected. It's old, it's dying. It's kind of a moving scene in a sense, because you know, it's the ship is using this Orishan as like its membrane. And then Riker approaches it and sees it's dying. And Riker's in a lot of rage because he thinks Troy is dead. Mm -hmm. And this person on the ship and the ship are to blame. But instead, he has a different reaction because when he views this this being and the state that's in, he realizes that this isn't the fault of this person. This person's basically a slave to the ship, and he reaches out and touches her cheek. He caresses her and sees that she's dying, and and just, it's it's kind of a it's not a real moving scene where I'm crying, but it was like it was a nice scene. I wasn't expecting that. Yeah, I really. You know, that scene was really good. And I also like that we get kind of almost a whole uh, chapter or part of a chapter from the perspective of this being who's at yeah. the center of the ship as well and how she came to be there and how she was prepared and how she didn't have faith in Ericon to begin with and didn't believe that this was a god and then kind of eventually turned into like its protector 
and like no one will dare go near it. I will protect it kind of thing. And yeah, I, I had a lot of empathy for this person. She she had a really interesting arc. Yeah. And eventually, yeah, she she dies shortly after they, they board. Well, because she was like in a, like a cocoon, which now had just shattered or withered away as as they were there. So um but her time had come and she had done, I guess, what her mission was to do at that time. But yeah, I thought that was very interesting. And at the same time, the shuttlecraft crew is is back aboard. They're all together um, because Moden ha- is on the shuttlecraft and is approaching the eye. And I guess because of the time distortions, she's able to then locate the other crew members who are at a spire and they're all beam back on the ship and then they beam back down to the spire and they're trying to help all the people. And as you know, the planet's going through these quakes and they're trying to rescue people, which was an interesting way too. They were using uh, their shields to uh, capture these civilians who are climbing up like higher, you know, like buildings are starting to collapse over and they would try to get to the high point of it. And then they would use these shields to kind of like chop that part that they're standing on and fly them away in the protected shield. That was kind of cool. Mm-hmm. That's something I've never seen in Star Trek before, but it makes sense. Yeah, it was a neat extrapolation of the technology. I kept, you know, having fun kind of trying to picture that exactly and how like a filmmaker would make that come to life on the screen or something like that. And it was kind of interesting to visualize. Yeah. And then eventually uh, they do, I'm not going to go on all the details or anything. Cause again, it's a little bit confusing, but they, they eventually get back to the Titan because, you know, the Titan's trying to essentially attack or try to do something to that warp pulse shield and, and the shuttlecraft's trying to come on the other side and one doesn't know what the other's doing or whatever, but eventually they get to each other and everybody lives happily ever after, except for Jazza because he's left behind. But at the same time, they had an orition on the shuttlecraft and she started to see what they were trying to do, that they actually were trying to help them and try to save them. And they explained to her what was going on with that warp technology that they were using because the eye was actually the planet Orishan. Does that make any sense? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a little weird to kind of wrap your head around, but I think it kind of made sense in the end. And it's, it's like it's all these little... time displacements. All these time displacements are going on or something, and they're all visualizing the planet that they're on the planet, but they're seeing the planet in the sky. It's the same planet, but and they they're calling it the eye. And because of all this displacement, and it's like one's try the plant's trying to move from one time realm and the other, and that's what's causing things to kind of shake and get disruptive. And because you you know, it's like trying to uh, move one person from one dimension to another while keeping themselves in the other dimension. And that's kind of how it was explained. Yeah, and and I mean that's kind of how I understood it as well. It's um, I, I think it's interesting that you know, the whole cause and effect thing of it and and that whole duality is kind of cool and that they were the ones causing the problems to begin with kind of thing. Uh, does it make a whole lot of sense? Maybe not, but it's technology. We can kind of let it make as much sense as it needs to, I guess. 
Yeah. But I think that's part of, again, there's just aspects that they were a little confusing, you know, like that, mm-hmm. or just hard to get my head around. I had to go back and kind of do some rereading or flip yeah. back a chapter or something like that. But, but yeah, eventually, you know, long story short now, the Orishans were able to stabilize their warp pulse technology that was causing all this disaster and stuff for that was happening and such. But, um, but Dan, where, where did this warp technology may have come from? Now this might be something that I just kind of made up in my head. And, and I don't know if there's anything in the text that really supports this, but in my mind, I always thought because the, the starship crashed a thousand years in the past and its warp core and stuff was still intact. It's the USS Charon uh, that the Orishans adapted that technology to create the the warp technology that they're using. Um, and I don't know if I'm just completely making that up or if there's something that that said something like that. But that's just kind of how my brain organized everything. And I didn't realize until after that... Uh, Maybe that's not the case because you didn't get that when you were reading it. I didn't get that when I read it, but it makes sense to me because there was nothing that was really described on how they were able to develop this warp technology. Because remember, as we said at the beginning of the show, they weren't using it for travel. And the crew was really questioning, why would you develop a warp technology if you're not using it for travel? It seems like an odd technology to use for for what they're using it for. And it would make sense if there is, you know, this crash ship there and there's this warp drive and they tap into it or they learn to develop something from it, that that's where it's coming from. I mean, it makes a lot of sense, but then you get the whole paradox of, well, the reason the ship's there is because of the warp pulse technology and that would have to be developed before the ship crash. But if that was developed because of the ship, like, I don't know. <laughs> as, as Janeway said in an early episode of Voyager, one of the hardest things to get your head around in quantum physics is that sometimes effect precedes cause, which didn't make any sense to me then and still doesn't make sense to me now. So <laughs> I don't think it made sense to her either. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. But, uh, you know, one of the other things is the, this particular author, Jeffrey Thorne, his style of writing, I find, is very interesting and kind of colorful. Like, he, you know, um, he, we talked a little bit earlier about how he writes with uh, just giving you little clues and letting you kind of piece it together as you go rather than just kind of giving you exactly what's happening kind of thing. And uh, I don't know if you you enjoyed this chapter as much as I did, but it was right near the end as well. They're basically, I think they're on Orisha, basically taking shore leave. And we, we see these groups of people, or one person or two people, and the author never says who they are. But from the context yes. of the little scene that we get, you're like, Oh, that's, that's Riker and Troy and Dr. Ree is talking to them. Okay. Or, oh, that's Modan and, you know, Vale. And I can't remember exactly who's talking to whom and all of them, but, you know, for all of them, sometimes it took me a couple times to just kind of read through it and then realize, oh, okay, that's, that's that guy. And, and that's what's going on. Um, 
I don't know. What did you think of that? I, I found that really interesting. I did too. I didn't like it the first okay. time I read it because I'm yeah. reading it, I'm like, okay, I'm confused. Who are we talking about here? What's going on? Because each section would start off with, he approached, you know, so-and-so, you know, he, and then the next thing she, and I'm like, well, who is he? Who is she? Like, you're not telling me who the characters are. You're telling me who they're approaching, but you don't tell me who it is that's approaching them. And so after I finished reading it, the next day I went back and I went back to that chapter. I'm like, what am I missing? I must have missed something. And from what I can tell, there's a certain pattern and maybe I'm wrong, but the pattern is that, and I don't remember exactly the characters at this point, but the first scene starts with two characters. Then the next scene starts with, you know, whoever he blah, 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 blah. And it's one of the previous characters in the other Hmm. scene. And so if it says so-and-so approached Vale and talked to Vale, blah, 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 blah. Next scene is she approached whoever. And then I'm thinking, okay, well, she would be Vale. The baton was was handed to the next character. So each scene, the person that is entering the scene is the person from the last scene that was approached. Does that make sense? See, I'm I'm kind of misremembering because I remembered it as like there were no names at all whatsoever. Okay, so for okay, yeah, because let me look here. So in chapter sixteen, I'm not really prepared to do this, but uh, we have a scene here with one of the Orishans and. Oh yeah. Okay. So starting on oh on my ebook anyway, four of twelve. So the first one, for example, is she found him in the wreckage, quietly scanning and occasionally digging. He hadn't seen her since that night in the sensor pod when she'd offered him comfort. She asked what he was up to, and he made some noises about getting clean scans of Charon's bones to provide Starfleet HQ, blah, blah, blah. It it was a Cardassian thing, and he didn't really expect her to understand. So there's no names at all, but you understand, oh, it's a Cardassian thing. Oh, that's Dakao, and... Right. And the person talking to him is uh, Modan because she told him she didn't understand that news of, or maybe it's not. No, it's. Um, is it Vale? No, it's. Because Vale's uh, in the previous scene. No, but there, it's not. It's um, because they're talking about when she offered him comfort in the sensor room, right? Who was that? That was. Oh, um, was that one of the. Cations, yeah. Cations. So yeah, that was one of the that was the Cation character. I can't remember. So there's little hints that like, oh, it's those two, and then the next one is two other people, and then so on and so forth. Yeah, I don't know. See, that's that's the thing. It's just it's really confusing. But then <laughs> I started to think that maybe it was just like you know, one person from each scene shows up in the next scene and they're not identified. I don't know. That that was kind of weird. <laughs> mm-hmm. That was one. Like I said, I had to kind of go back and. Uh, re-examine them and realize, okay, that one is Dakal talking to the Cation Ensign from the sensor room. And then an, a later one I remember, for example, is Riker and Troy, who we haven't really talked about. They have this whole thing kind of going on as well. Yes. And you understand from this scene that she's gotten good news from Dr. Re yeah. regarding something. So, But why not identify the characters? Why do you think the choice for the the author made in this chapter to not identify characters. It's like all hinted at. It's like a puzzle you have to put together. And I think 
it's basically just kind of in the style of the entire book because the whole book is kind of this puzzle that you have to put together and piece things together. So like at the beginning with uh, what character is this? What's going on? Why is he on this planet? Um, and then if you apply that even to Jazza Najem's life, his whole life is kind of this puzzle that he's been given clues to by the prophets that he has to piece together. And when he sees that field, he's like, oh my God, this is the answer to the puzzle, but it's not quite what he expects. I think it's just this kind of thematic thing that he's worked into the book that reading online, I think some people found really annoying, but I really enjoyed. <laughs> yeah, it's it's definitely causing an interesting conversation and us speculating. So it, it, I guess that's what he was trying to do. <laughs> yeah, I'd say so. I Yeah, and and I know based on what I've seen, opinions on this book are very polarized. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. It seems like people either really liked it or really didn't like it. Mm, yeah, I can, I can see that. Cause I do, you mentioned Will and Riker and I'm glad you did. Cause I was going to bring this up now. Uh, that's some of the problems I had with the novel, not serious, but there was a lot of times, especially in the first half of the book, where there's a lot of our characters that are not getting along very well, like Vale and Troy were kind of going at it with each other. Vale says, you know, I, I need you, Troy, to be watching Rahav Ray, you know, in engineering. He's he's acting crazy, and that's your job. And Troy's mm-hmm. just like, don't talk to me that way, Commander. You know, I was like, wait, what <laughs> is going on with these two? And then, you know, oh, Troy and Riker aren't getting along. And then, of course, Jazza and Rahavari are not getting along. Like, it's just like, I was like, wait, is there something going on? Is this anomaly ca- causing people to be pissed off at each, each other or something? You know, <laughs> it was kind of yeah. bothering me. And again, it kind of goes into that the way he's crafted the novel because you're you're seeing the effects of what's going on but you don't get the pieces as to like what it is that's causing it till later so we learn that Riker and Troy aren't getting along because they're interested in having a child and they're coming to some disagreements about some stuff to do with that because you know he wants to be a little overprotective of her and she's bristling against that and that kind of thing and you don't find that until much later in the novel right so i i think it's kind of this whole theme that he's put in to just kind of give you little clues and then more clues as you go along to kind of piece it all together and that was the one thing i did remember previously reading this novel so early on i knew why that was going on without him revealing it because i did remember that Mm-hmm. And a big part that I remembered was, uh, of course, the follow on to that, this this story that we'll get in the Destiny trilogy, which is that's why I remembered. That's why this is happening too. Mm-hmm. yes. The Destiny trilogy, which we will be getting to in just a few months. It looms. <laughs> it does. OK, well, before we wrap up this novel, because we were at the end of it. I do want to mention one other thing that makes this novel unique, and that is the fact that this is the fourth Titan novel, as we mentioned before, but we never seen the Titan, the USS Titan. We've never seen that starship. Well, that's because they hadn't designed it yet, and there was a contest held where anybody could uh, enter a send in a diagram of their version of the USS Titan. 
And that winner was Sean Terenjo, who won the design competition for the Titan. And so the cover shows the Titan, but in the middle of the paperback novel is a fold out diagram of the USS Titan from all angles. And it's got some, you know, words on here describing certain aspects of it. And I have to say, you know, I, I love the look of the Titan and uh, it's a nice little thing to have that in the middle of the book. And yeah, it's really cool how that design has uh, has stuck. And I mean, I have a little Eagle Moss model of the Titan, for example. Did you catch the little Easter egg to the designer of the Titan in the book as well? Oh, no. Tell me. <laughs> in chapter six, uh, Dr. Rahav Ray talks about one of the fellow designers of the Titan class or of the Luna class starship. Um, and so here's the paragraph in chapter six. One of my colleagues on the Luna project felt that way. He said, eventually frowning over the exposed guts of the tricorders in his lap. Dr. Taranjo felt that our work was in the nature of a competition with us setting ourselves against the limitations imposed by nature and finding ways around them. So I was, I was like, Oh, that's neat. And just that little bit of a, a little kudos to the, the actual designer of the USS Titan in the novel here. And I didn't pick that up because I hadn't read yet who the designer <laughs> of the Titan was when I was reading this, but it's funny you say it's in chapter six because I'm opening the book here and that insert of the diagrams of the Titan is in the middle of chapter six. Oh, right on. That's cool. I was actually, I, I have the paperback somewhere. I'm not sure where, but I was actually reading the ebook version. So um, that's neat. I wonder that that must have been planned to have that so close there. That's really cool. Yeah, that is. That is really cool. So, um, yeah. And there we have the Titan. So will the Titan still look like that after Star Trek Picard premieres? Stay tuned. Mm. We will find out. I bet it will. <laughs> I, yeah, it's, it's been, it's a design that's stuck around enough that I'm like, they, they, they should use that if, if the Titan shows up somehow. Ah, uh, yes, we shall see. So that being said, uh, final thoughts, Dan. As I've mentioned during this uh, review that we've been talking here, this novel's a bit polarizing. Some people really like it. Some people really dislike it. I'm definitely on the really like it side. I like his style of writing. I loved the story. Uh, I, I thought Jazza Najem's arc was really interesting and it was a fun kind of way for him to leave the series i'm sad to see him leave i'm kind of wondering if like as we go through these titan books do we just lose a character every book because last book we lost uh or really the ensign uh who stayed with the pahakwell and then this book we've lost jaza najem who stays behind on this planet a thousand years in the past so uh sad to see him go but i really liked his story so I'm giving it a four out of five crashed warp core pieces that maybe help launch the technology of a planet. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. Uh, yeah, I would say that uh, you said it's polarizing for some people. I, I can sense that it, it I'm kind of in the middle of this. I, I enjoy the story. I like that. It's complex. I like the jazz, a character, I like how this was a little bit mysterious and had you guessing. I like being a little confused, but sometimes I get 
to a point where I don't like to be confused because I feel like I'm getting a little confused too much. But uh, I didn't like, as I mentioned earlier, about the dynamics with the characters like Vale and Troy's conversation. It just kind of bothered me a little. The bickering that was happening on the shuttlecraft and stuff. It wasn't that bad. It was just like, I don't know. I guess because when you think of the next generation, you're like, oh, everybody gets along so well. And now it seemed like people weren't getting along all that well. But I mean, outside of that, I mean, I would say that, you know, the characters were pretty much spot on uh, as themselves. But anyway, I would say that very interested in the concept, somewhat confusing. So I'm in the middle. I give it three out of five tremors on the planet. Ooh. Now, do these tremors involve big, like, worms coming up from the... No, that's a different tremors. Never mind. No, that's, that one I understood. I was never confused by that. <laughs> and that's, that's, that's not good. <laughs> so, Bruce, if you were trapped a thousand years in the past and you were trying to guide a civilization, how do you think you would adapt? I, I feel like this would be a tough life for anybody uh, it's not something I'd be interested in taking up as a full-time job, I think. No, but if I had to go a thousand years in the past, I wouldn't mind changing the timeline and I would take episodes of Star Trek with me and bring everybody up on the philosophy of Idic. Nice. I like that. Let's do that. But they bring you for being a witch because you're showing these, them these weird moving <laughs> pictures. <laughs> oh, that's true. They'd also call me the eye. I don't know. <laughs> well, it's been fun talking about me being a witch today, but it's not the only thing we've been discussing on the network. So here's a quick look at some of the other things you may have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.FM, The Ready Room. Tilly got a good launch. She had her subplot with with May, which was the mycelial creation, yeah. and she didn't come back. I that I just now realized that well, she she went they, away with. She a didn't thought. come back because they they fell into the trap of using her as comic relief, which they do way too much. Yeah, yeah. Well, the Edge, a Star Trek Discovery podcast. It's very similar to Sarek, you know, first wife get a divorce, whatever, and then start a new family, that those siblings, and especially with that age gap, is not going to, you know, really remember or consider it a family. Mm -hmm. See, that's it. Amy just ruined canon on this show. Primitive Culture, a look at history and culture through Star Trek. Even that song, the way they sing it, I find it hilarious. You, you know, Terry Farrell clearly can't really be bothered to sing a song <laughs> as she's like almost speaking it. Uh, Adrian Brooks, meanwhile, just absolutely goes for it and sings it. Not only does he sing it, but he sings it in this That's way. That's, yeah. Like, Hello, Marine. One, two, three. Bizarre. I mean, like, I know he, like, when he, when he does his singing later on in DS9, yeah. he often, he, he does sing, he has a quite a high voice given what a big kind of booming guy he is and so on. But the, the, he, like, he doesn't just sing the song, yeah. he kind of commits to, uh, I'm doing a silly nursery rhyme dance He does commit, thing. yeah. The 602 Club. Yeah, it, like that scene on the plane was so meaningful to me dealing with that because it's like, Happy is just providing the equipment and saying go and 
letting Peter fiddle with it to create himself a new suit. But you see that the way that he's working with the computer, it's, you know, that computer screen that's projected into the air like Tony uses. And he's like grabbing things and moving them and zooming in and out and making like, you know, mannerisms and calculations like Tony always did when he was working on something with Jarvis. And you see Happy look at him and smile like a father looking at his son. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Boom chuckalaka, boom chuckalaka. Check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. And you'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they're published. And please leave us a star rating and written review. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, YouTube, in most third-party apps, and you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. Ah, yes, that's what you can do. And if you'd like to help us keep our shows coming to you each and every week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash Trek FM. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more. Available through our special patrons website, Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month. We really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. We'd lo- no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to do that. The best place, of course, to join in the larger conversation is the Babel Conference. That's our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. Choose to send to a show and select Literary Treks, and that'll come right to us. You can also find the network on Twitter, we're at trek.fm, and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. Hey, you can find us on the Goodreads group, where we have a bookshelf of all our previously covered books, as well as the currently reading section, so you know what is coming on the future shows, and there's plus great, there's all this conversation going on about all kinds of great stuff, and the books, and the comics, and all that stuff, and just search for literary trucks and Goodreads, and you just click the, 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 yeah, you just click join group, and you're good to go. And we'd like to thank... Norman C. Lau, Ken Tripp, Greg Rosier, Brandon Shea Motella, Justin Ozer, and Jeffrey Harlan for their support of Trek FM, the network, and being associate producers for Literary Treks as well. So, Dan, well, tell us, where can people find you when you're not flying into an eye? <laughs> well, uh, when I'm not doing that, you can certainly find me on Twitter. I'm at Kurtrats, that's K-E-R-T-R-A-T-S. You can also find me on YouTube.com slash Productions, where I make videos about pretty much anything to do with the Star Trek universe. You can also find me on Facebook.com slash Productions, And of course, you can find me in the Babel Conference, usually lurking, but sometimes commenting, uh, but not often. <laughs> Now, Bruce, when you're not wearing some sort of virtual reality headgear and flying a weird probe around, where can we find you? I'm lost. I don't know where I am. I'm so lost. I don't know where I'm going. But 
you can't find me because I'm lost. I don't know where to tell you I am, so don't worry about it. So anyway, thanks to everyone for... No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, you can find okay. me on Twitter at Admiral underscore Rex, and you can find me on the Star Wars Report podcast. And when we do uh, Discovery, uh, when new episodes of Discovery come out the next day, I'm on with Brandy Jacola, and we're doing Live from the Edge. And of course, I'm always in the Babel Conference. So thanks, everyone, for listening. And until next time... Live long. And read on. You call that light reading? To each his own, number one.